our speaker this morning. And if you were here last week, I told you that Martin was going to come. And when I said Martin Standards, there was a uh, kind of a sigh that went across the room. So if you've been around Grace for very long, then you know Martin um, and you know who he is. But I've had the pleasure of being with Martin over the last uh, decade on and off. And uh, here's what I would say about Martin. Through good and bad, through thick and thin, uh, Martin is Martin. And he walks with the Lord and he has a word for us this morning. So welcome, Martin Sanders. Hello, Hello. Yeah. It always does feel like I've come back home. Except some of you aren't seated in the right spots. You've like moved. I'm used to seeing you here. What are you doing? Easter week is one of those unique times of both of the year. And it's a great descriptor of much of life. Whenever I think of uh, Palm Sunday and Easter week, there's a celebration side to it. And on the other side, it's almost like when the music fades. You've got a roller coaster of all of human experience happening in one week. And it's this definitive week, but it's also a tough week. But it starts on Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is sort of like one of those best of human experiences. It's one of those moments when absolutely everything appears to be coming together. You hope for moments like that. It's like enough of life not going the way I want it to. It looks like my season is just at hand. It feels like things are coming together. Life couldn't get better. All the hopes and dreams are all gonna come together at once. You've had those. Some of you get to live there, but not all of us do. For many of the rest of us, there's twists and turns to these stories, and we don't get to stay in the best of moments. So I want to frame Easter week for us and the passage in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 21 about what, how we live through life from the greatest of moments that turn to when the music fades, only to rise again at the end with great crescendo. We're looking at Matthew 21 with you this morning, beginning in the first few verses. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage on Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples and said to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and, and by her the colt. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, he was implying, and they will. If anyone says anything to you, simply say, the Lord needs them, and they'll send them right away. And then this, this matter-of-fact verse, the disciples went and Jesus had instructed them. Now, one of the things that pre preachers always want, always want to do is be relevant and bring the there and then into the here and the now. I don't recommend you do it with this passage this morning. Do not go someplace, you see an animal tied and go, I'm gonna take it, and if anyone says anything, say the master needs it. <laughs> or if we're updating modes of transportation, you find a car in a parking lot you want, yeah, don't. <laughs> it's Detroit, don't do that. Yeah. 
as we look at the first part of this passage, there's just sort of this one big frame of reference from Jesus to every one of the players of the story in this passage. The Palm Sunday and Easter week is really about character. It's really just about character. When we paint a portrait of Jesus, he had this opportunity to not just make history, be history, change history, transform history. And the portrait of Jesus is that he decided early on, I've got a clear mission. I'm going to see it through to the end. If we could summarize Jesus' life in human terms, he had a sense of just authentic life purpose, authentic humility. The song, the old song says he could have called 10,000 angels, but he didn't. He went through with his mission for you, for me. It's about authentic humility. We know that Jesus is both human and divine, but we're never quite sure what to do with that, and we don't like to talk about it very much. I run a doctoral program in New York, and we've been honored to have quite a number of the key leaders in the New York region come. The Bishop of Harlem is in our program, and talented young Latino guy who's uh, viewed as the Bishop of the Bronx. I'm not sure that's a title you want, <laughs> but it's his title. And uh, the bishop from Harlem says, it's really interesting with my people who said, my people don't want me nor Jesus to be human. They only want the divine. So they miss out on a large portion of how to identify both with you as their leader and with Jesus, the Messiah. One of the questions, of course, we've got to frame it theologically. We're in church. It's a great place to do it. We don't usually think about it. But we love the miracle stories of the Gospels. They're, they're some of the best read in all of the Bible. But we have to ask the question, did Jesus do these amazing miracles in his divinity or in his humanity? It's a good question to ask. Without much thought, the average person who sits in church would go, well, obviously his divinity was the son of the living God. Mm, rethink that one. Because you remember what Jesus said? He said, greater things you will do than I have done because I go to the Father. Now you may be really good, but you're not divine. I know some of you look divine when you're ready to go out. <laughs> However, in reality, you are not divine. In the best of his humanity, empowered by the Spirit of God, Jesus did these amazing miracles. And then he says, you think these are cool? When this partnership happens, greater things you will do than I have done. Because I'm with you and I'm going to the Father. You can do this. It's just, it's just this portrait of character. So when it comes to character, we've got to begin to focus on ourselves on this one. And go, if there's this character of Christ, which is summarized for us in the scriptures and enforced around the world. Then what about your character? It's the human side. The human side is what you're known for, but you also have this addition of the character of Christ. So if reputation is what people think you are, then character is what God knows you are. The key is that the two match. That the two actually match. 
want to focus on this line in the middle, the human side. What are you known for? I want to talk about your spirit for just a minute. We don't have many conversations about your spirit, but I'd like to today because it's, it's sort of a descriptor, a definitive phrase, if you will, about you. The Bible uses a lot of these. Um, probably one of the most noted would be as we go to the end of... Uh, the end of Deuteronomy, the great leadership transition between Moses um, and to both Caleb and Joshua, tip of the hand at the end goes to Joshua. They all had descriptors about their spirit, about their character. It says of, of Moses, of course, he was a man whom the Lord knew face to face. It's a pretty cool descriptor. Um, it says of Joshua, he was a man in whom was the spirit defined for us a spirit of wisdom. Caleb got sort of the coolest label. Caleb had a different spirit. He followed the Lord fully all of his days. Now that's a good one. John's gospel, of course, John was a disciple whom Jesus loved. David was a man after God's own heart. You get the picture. Now you know this just about human existence. There's a group, a gathering of people, and somebody walks away. Somebody walks away from the group. Every time there's a phrase pops in your head about them, and sometimes somebody actually articulates it. Sometimes we go, glad they left. <laughs> Come on, you know what I'm saying. But on the other side, it's, I, I love her spirit. I was just with somebody and the guy walked away and someone actually said, I feel more loved by God when he's here. Now that's a good one. Here's the point. You get a chance to partner with God of what is said about your spirit. Don't create a fantasy one. It's the real one. So first of all, what do they say? Because we know they say something. What do they say? But what could they say about you? What could they say? I overheard a conversation this week. Um, my family was doing a conference call. We've got an event coming up and I got on the uh, phone call a little late. And as it was put back together for me, my oldest son said to my youngest daughter, how's our father doing? And she had just been with me. And I got in on this part, my youngest daughter passed the bar in Pennsylvania last year, and she goes, he's a beautiful, beautiful man. I mean, A, a father never gets to hear it. But that's not how I would describe myself. <laughs> and I, I was counting more on strength. Studley would be preferred to beautiful. Um, yeah, that's, um, that's not what I was hoping for. I'll take it, because it's so much better than what alternatives could be. But it's one of those moments of life when I got to hear it. Now, come on, you get a chance to frame your character so that when people are around you, there's a phrase they use. We're going to talk a little later about this partnership with God and the Spirit. Let's get those phrases going. Not so you hear them, but so they're said about you, absolutely to the glory of God. 
frame character for you just one more, for, one more time. Listen to this narrative. God is forever on a quest. I don't know if you've thought about it lately. His pursuit is a subject woven through the fabric of the New Testament. Pattern he follows is set forth for us in Romans 8:29, when he promises to conform us to the very image of his son. In Philippians 1:6, we're told that he who began a work in us is not about to stop. We're even called his workmanship. You see, God is hammering and filing and chiseling and shaping us. Peter lists some of the things that are included in this quest, things like diligence and faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and love. Simply in one word, it's character. Character qualities in his children. It's God's relentless quest, and his strobe light will continue to penetrate our darkness. He will not quit his quest until he's completed that checklist in us. When will that be? Oh, your theologies will vary. There's too many people who say, ah, when I take that final breath, and those who love the most are going, could you speed it up a little earlier, please? Let's update your character now. We don't want to wait for the sweet by and by. Come on. Only then will his mission be completed in us, and we have him to thank for not giving up on us in this process of character development. Notice the simple phrase that we said earlier. When it came to the disciples who had to go do this task, it said, and they did it immediately. If there's a clear focus, if you're not here as a self-help that God will make your life slightly better. But if you're here to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, and he says to you, it's time for this, you respond yes, like the disciples did. The first part of the passage is about character. Second part transitions for us in verses four, five, and following. He says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And then the quote, say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and a colt by its side, there with him. And that day, they brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed the cloaks and coats on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd gathered, and they too placed their coats and cloaks on the road, while others put branches down and spread them on the road. The crowds gathered, and as they went ahead of them, they shouted loudly, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest heavens. If the first part of this passage is about character, the second part's about your destiny. I told you we were going to talk about this divine partnership. Too often in places like this and speakers like me have pushed you, urged you, if you will, to have a bigger or a deeper, some sort of better commitment. No, it's a partnership. For some reason that God alone knows, he picked you. Now, if I was pulling a team together, let's be honest, some of you, honestly, I wouldn't put on my team. Come on, can't lie from up here. 
But then again, when I look back over my last 30 years, there were moments when people said, I wouldn't pick you on my team either. And that would be fair. But see, that's one of the great things about God. He picked you. He wants you. And this thing of a bigger, deeper, better commitment, if that motivates you, fine. That's not the text. The text is simply the father of your soul just simply wants you. He wants you to bring all of who you are, the best and the worst of you, and he wants to create this partnership. And he simply says, I'll do my part. I just need you to do yours. I need you to do yours. That's why we start with character. But we're gonna end with destiny. And it's the steps in between that make the biggest difference. In this partnership, it goes like this. If you sow a thought, it begins in your head. If you sow a thought, you reap an act. You sow an act, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a character. You sow a character, you reap a destiny. I love this phrase. For more than 20 years, I've been a part of a mentoring group from uh, people from literally all across the, the planet. Um, more than 20 years ago, Leighton Ford, who's Billy Graham's brother-in-law, married Billy's youngest sister. Um, he was a part of the Graham Association and he was literally handpicked to be Billy's successor. The problem was Billy never quit. And so, in his uh, about 50, Leighton saw that there wasn't gonna be, he wasn't gonna move into the position. So he went to them and said, look, I wanna give the rest of my life to developing younger leaders. So they commissioned him and sent him out to do that. And one of the first things he did is he handpicked 17 of us from 14 countries. Everybody did international uh, leadership development, evangelism, et cetera. It's an interesting group. Um, I mean, just, just by, if I mentioned some names, you would know some of them. But I, I, would, I would say a couple million people have come to Christ through the ministries of these people. There's probably well over 100 books published. There's more doctorates than there are people in the group. Some have two. Overachievers. <laughs> but a few years ago, we were together in England, and all of us were to do a talk, um, just a 10-minute talk to set the stage for the day. So I thought, um, I'm going to be um, far less impressive and simple and get to the core of things. So I just used these four lines with these profound thinkers from around the world. It was supposed to be 10 minutes. It went two hours and 20 minutes. Because I presented this, I, my emphasis was, was on character. It's always a good reminder, especially when other people tell you you're more amazing than you know you are. It's always good to have a reminder. Somebody holds up a mirror and goes, yeah, you're, you're just regular. Come on, let's deal with your character. But that's not what they want to talk about. They want to talk about destiny. First question was, Martin, does everybody have a destiny? I went, you all are smarter than me. You, you know the answer to this one. The conversation went on and on and on. Here's what intrigued me. Here were people that God was using at a high, high level who were saying, is this the best God has for me? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And I looked at them and went, you're 50. God's used you significantly. You're I can go, I can list all of your resume and you're still asking this question? Yes. And part of it was the overachiever piece and part of it was I never want to miss the best of what God has for me. Ever. 
So let's go through it one more time. Listen carefully. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. Destiny is not what you will do. Destiny is who you are and how God will use that every place you go. Every place you go. I was asked five times this week, I'm not sure why, but I was asked five times this, this week what my title is. I'm going, seriously, I don't want to have this conversation, but since you ask, here's the title. I am the Reverend Doctor His Holiness, Bishop Martin Sanders, <laughs> the, the first. And people go, seriously? And I went, you ask. And the look on the face was, I wish I hadn't. <laughs> you see, those don't mean anything. It's when we have a conversation and you walk away, or I walk away, or it's getting on the phone when I, my kids don't know I'm on the phone in the descriptor. Your destiny is who you are as a person. And it's the way God will use you, way beyond any position or title way beyond any recognition you get. It's heart and soul stuff, folks. It's character. It's destiny. Let's see the passage move on. Verses 10 and 11 is the Easter week passage wraps up for us this part on Palm Sunday. It says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city, this is great, the whole city gathered they were stirring and asking, who is this? And the crowds answered, come on, it's Jesus. He's the prophet of Nazareth in Galilee. You see, Jesus went along with all this, knowing that the music would fade. The celebrations weren't going to last a lifetime for him. The disciples were hoping. Peter, of course, was the one. He wanted to be the enforcer, which is why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he pulled the sword and cut somebody's ear off. You mess with Jesus, you mess with me. <laughs> you get the picture. The music began to fade and the people around him got disappointed. It happens in the human experience. So what do you do when the music fades? For Jesus, as a matter of fact, you still keep going. I know my mission, I know my destiny, I know where I'm going, I know what I have to do. I will do it because I'm committed to this character. Let's frame it for us. Because if the first part's about character and the second part's about destiny, this one is, how do you keep hope alive in the midst of soul-robbing disappointment? When I mention soul-robbing disappointment, some of you have clear memories, pictures, images come to your mind. Some of you are in it now. For those of you who haven't and aren't there now, just thank God. Take a deep breath and thank God. This is the one week that changed history. So when we put ourselves in these pictures, I mean, come on, the disciples had these great plans of what was going to happen. They saw their role. They saw what they were going to get to be and do. When Jesus came in, he was always talking about the kingdom and his kingdom. 
some of the disciples and some of the followers actually appear to have been the brothers of Jesus. Now, for some of you who think your brother had a Messiah complex, yeah, stand in line. Imagine Jesus' brothers. It was hard for them. I finally get this. Imagine his mother. Like some of you mothers have great dreams for your children. She really did think hers was Messiah. And to know the promise of that and then to know the great disappointment of soul-robbing discouragements that come. The question is, how do you keep hope alive when you go through those? Some of you know my story. My wife had been through a dreadful illness and uh, seven months ago this week, um, she passed. Um, just, just a few, few days ago, we got the uh, clinical pathological report and she had been misdiagnosed. What she had was even more rare and stranger than what they thought. I mean, the words on the page say it's cardiobasal degeneration. Basically, the base of her brain died. In her 50s, it was way too young. And so I said, look, my last few years, I've been to the edge of hell and back. It's the end back part that makes the difference. Because when life throws you things and you go to the edge of hell, too many times we stay there. Just this soul-robbing disappointment almost feels like it has you bound. But it's in the coming back that makes the difference. And that's what this passage is about, and it's, about, it's what Easter week is about. It's how you come back. So hope you're going to keep hope alive. Hope takes you through the greatest disappointments of life you'll ever find. It's the perseverance piece that we just talked about earlier in the, um, the first Peter passage that brings you to the ultimate promise. The last several years I've been helping this church, I couldn't travel much at all. Matter of fact, none for two years. And so I've helped this church that had absolutely collapsed in our town come back to life. Sunday before I got there, there were 58 people. Uh, last Sunday, there were well over 300. We were anticipating two services and four to 500 on Easter. It's quite a resurrection story, kind of fun, yeah. <laughs> Especially when I only had about a day and a half a week to do it, and we just kept saying to the people, uh, it's your church, you want it to happen, you take care of it. And they responded well. It's great fun. But I decided to do a summer series last summer and the summer series was called Surviving the Dog Days of the Soul. And the kickoff was how to keep hope alive. Now, in my mind, it was just a good introduction to the summer series. It was not how the people took it. I have had, of, of anything I've preached in years, I've had more people over months and months quote references from that message more than anything else. So apparently... Apparently for people like us, keeping hope alive is crucial. And so whenever and whatever your challenge before you is, that's what Easter week's about. Let's go to the next slide. 
You see, we, we know the promises of God come, and there is a fulfillment. We wish there was a straight line right across. But if you've lived it all, you realize it's not a straight line. It's at best a dotted, broken line. It's often as you're down in the valley when you figure out a number of things, and it's when you're there that you figure out what your character is and who God really is and how much strength and authority and power he has in the depths of his care for you. It's when you get it. Not when everything has come together like you had always hoped. Having done this for a long, long time, I think not the greatest confusion people have in relationship with God, but I'll frame it as the greatest frustration people have in their relationship with God, is that he has a very different perception of time than you have. <laughs> and if you haven't noticed, he feels under no obligation to accommodate you <laughs> and your perspective on time. I don't think he makes fun of you, I would if I was God. <laughs> like, seriously, you need it yesterday? Yeah, come on, that's why it's called faith. It's why it's called faith. But he feels under no obligation. I mean, it's in the first pages of the Bible, the, uh, the Abraham story. They're already too old, they can't have children. It never worked. All the phrases. I'm sure the medical diagnosis would have been discouraging to both of them. And God said, no, I'm not only going to give you children, I'm going to make you the father of many, the parents of multitudes. And then, instead of it happening like that, yeah, he made him wait. And wait longer, and wait longer. And before long you're going, okay God, this is just kind of a little mean. You tell people who are already too old, A, I'm gonna give you children, and B, I'm gonna use you as somebody who blesses the world with your children. Yeah, but just wait till you're dreadfully old and nearly dead, and then maybe I will. <laughs> no. Folks, this is why it's called faith. It's active trust that moves you from the promise to the fulfillment. And it's the kind of character you develop, the kind of spirit that lives within you. So it defines your destiny and the fullness of this fulfillment. Let's wrap this passage up, shall we? Let's keep hope alive. There's a great little phrase that's used multiple times in the Bible. So you don't grow weary and lose heart. God knows what we're like knows that our tendency is to get discouraged too quickly. To say we trust him and when the time frames don't work, we have our own phrases we use. Let's keep hope alive so we don't grow weary and lose heart. You know the, the story. It was, um, the music began to fade. Some of the same voices that sang Hosanna in the highest, said crucify him, crucify him. And nobody was courageous enough to stop it, and so they did. And so you want to talk soul-robbing disappointment for the people who believed it was there. 
but it was just a matter of moments before it came back. So let's talk about Easter week, Easter week 2015. In Easter week, I'm gonna ask you to press in. Please don't use this next week as a regular week where you slip into one or two extra services. Don't do that. This could be a definitive week for a number of you. A week where some of the old patterns break, where some freshness comes into your soul that's just not been there ever, maybe. Press in this week. That doesn't mean go to every service you can. That means instead of pushing the uh, alarm a few extra times for snooze, open the eyes, embrace the day, welcome the spirit, and ask what he holds for you that day. Press in. This is a great week to begin to think through what's the reshaping of my character gonna look like? What's the phrase about my spirit? What's it gonna be? I bet some of you have some really cool phrases. It's okay to have a little flair to your phrase, by the way. These don't have to be like dull and religious. They can have flair to them. It's a week to consider it. When you do these, I'll tell you what happens. You hear stories of people say, I remember Easter week. 2012, I remember Easter week 99, I pressed in. It's a moment that defined the rest of my life. And because it's Easter week, you remember the week. So press in. If you need to, it's a week to keep hope alive. But if it's not for you, for somebody else, there are people around you who love that you have hope And they need you to come and stand with them. Because they don't have enough of their own. You know them. Just be with them. Please don't say too much. Just be with them. There's a great phrase that says, there's more hope than you know. I'm always surprised what that does for people. There's more hope than you know. And this is a time to embrace the promise of God in your life. We're going to do communion in just 60 seconds. Let's get ready for it. As we prep for communion, you bring it all into the light. First John 1 tells us to bring, all, bring it into the light. Bring everything into the light. Not just the part you're comfortable telling. Bring it all. Pull it out of the darkness. Bring it into the light. It's time to leave it behind. Let's just talk, you and me. Here's how it works. Very often on communion, we acknowledge things, we confess things, but we don't repent. They flare up again. What if Easter week 2015 you decided it was time to break the back of that old sucker that haunts you. And to actually partner with the Spirit to say enough's enough. I'm gonna enter a no excuse zone. And I'm gonna break the back of this thing. 
and you'll tell the story the rest of your life. And it'll start like this. It was Easter week 2015, I remember it. The thing that had plagued me forever was broken. Oh, those are great stories. Some of you need that story. It's time to focus on your character and find that phrase. So when we come to communion, there's, all, there's always two great things. A, there's always something to leave behind. And B, there's something to ask for. Because the very nature of your Father in heaven is he wants to give you good gifts. So it's a great day to just open up and go, come on, I'm ready. I've done my part. Here we go. The partnership is intact. We are engaged. Here we go. I think I've done my part. Let it come. Let it come. Here's what we do with communion here. Those of you on the floor, come to the center. Come down the center. As you take communion, there's something to leave behind. We will also have prayer people up here. So you'll, they'll be up on the stairs. For some of you, in order to bring it all into the light, it's not just telling God. The words need to come out of your mouth and somebody pray over you and break this. If that's useful for you, do that. For those of you on the sides and at the top, just come to the center so we can flow well through this. And then you go up the sides. Let me pray for us, and let's take communion together. Lord, one of your favorite things is life change. Today, can we break the old mindset of trying a little harder and doing a little better, mentioning that we probably need to confess something and actually break the back of a couple things? You make great offers to us. We want to take you up on them today. If necessary, let's picture something to leave behind. A phrase about our character or spirit that we want to embrace. And then a great gift from you. Your children now come. Expectant and receiving. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. When you're ready, let's take communion together, shall we?